This is the Edify Podcast for the servant. Let's go ahead and lay this final foundational brick when it comes to preaching. What what does preaching serve? What place does it serve in the believer's spiritual growth? Would we say that it's essential? Is it primary? Is it secondary? Um, let's let's break up this idea and this thought, the, the primacy of preaching uh, in three ways. Number one, progressive sanctification for every believer. Number two, the means of grace. And number three, preaching as primary among these means. So the aim of this episode, I, I would say, is to demonstrate the critical role preaching plays in the believer's sanctification. They need to know how imperative and how important and how uh, primary this is in their life. You yourself need to know this as you preach and teach God's Word. Then how will they hear except uh, a preacher be sent? So the role of this this act of preaching must be solidified, number one, in your mind. Number two, it's how the shepherds feed the flock of God, how they point in, uh, and it's how the, the, the sheep are fed. Preaching. Of course, teaching and personal study, yes, absolutely. But preaching is the primary means that God exercises uh, progressive sanctification and the means of grace. And so we need to shed some proper light on that. So let's talk about, number one, the progressive sanctification. <clears throat> we would say progressive sanctification is the process that takes place between positional and perfected sanctification. We are all in between our already and not yet, if you will. It, this is the process where... The believer is conformed ever more into the image of Christ. It describes the, the believer becoming uh, progressively set apart with, with the net effect of being progressively set apart from sin. It's, it's where a person, uh, just the other day I had a person text me, I baptized this sweet, sweet, sweet lady um, who I love in the Lord last week, baptized her, and she sent me a text message later on that evening after she had gotten home, she said, Jake, you wouldn't understand. You, you wouldn't believe the the uh, relief I feel in my chest, my physical chest. And I thought, yeah, I would. You know, uh, you know. And I hear that often from people. And, and that's a beautiful thing for people to feel, uh, physically feel a certain way after uh, the emotional and spiritual burdens of their life have been lifted. So that's, that's a period where she is now sanctified, but she now feels something uh, within her that she is set apart by God, she's cleansed from her sins, and now what she is going to be uh, involved with the rest of her life is is progressive sanctification, where all of her outward conduct is actually the fruit of what is happening on the inside. Sanctification is a process of internal transformation, but it's not just internal. It's not just something that we do uh, ourselves based upon natural means. It's also, let me use this term, uh, super or above natural means. Don't think Jake has left the kook, <clears throat> left at the cuckoo's nest. What I mean is, is that the author of our sanctification is God. So it's not by natural means. It's it's shown out in physical ways, but but it doesn't begin that way. It's not a physical thing. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the spiritual darkness and the spiritual realm. And that's where our war is. That's that's something that is above nature. And we can't be saved by any natural means. We're saved by grace through faith and the faith system that Jesus came to bring in the gospel and the kingdom and so on. But but look at it this way. there There is a physical sense of sanctification, but there also is a spiritual sense of sanctification. And we know this, but 
But let's look at a verse to highlight this. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's a physical aspect to sanctification uh, and this process of sanctification where, yes, we're set apart, but now we have to begin the ugly stuff of warring day in and day out with sanctification, with remaining pure. And just as I mentioned just a second ago, that who is now a sweet sister, uh, she is set apart by God. She is the elect, the chosen of God, um, by faith in Christ's work, uh, by being immersed by baptism, uh, into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, uh, and her faith is in the God who raised her from the from the dead, Colossians 2.12. And so because she has taken part of that and gained access by faith into this grace, she now is at a place where sin becomes less, less, and more less, uh, appeasing to her. So the longer that she lives in the kingdom and the longer she she does her part in uh, working out her salvation, and when you and I do that, uh, dear listener, we sin becomes less desirable. And the more we mature in Christ, we become more sanctified and, and more, um, more conformed to the image. And we'll get to that verse in just a moment. But, but there's a physical sense in which that's true. But then he says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, for it is God who is at work in you both to work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this indicates that God is at work, not us, but God is at work in believers that they may not only work for his good pleasure, but even will for his good pleasure. So that God works in the believer toward this this end means that he works at the level of their desires. So when when we when we you and I work for God's good pleasure we do so in a manner consistent with what we want the most. This is John Piper says God is most glorified in us and we are most satisfied in him. So that means that the outward manifestations of God pleasing God wrought work it originates with him and it's an accurately reflection of the inner man that's within you and I. So as I mentioned a while ago, the image of Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.18, this, this process takes place by beholding that glory. That verse says, but we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So in Christ, the veil which once blinded the believer to his glory has been removed, Second Corinthians 3.14. So now, with an unveiled face, nothing in our way anymore, you and I, he, she, beholds his glory as in a mirror. So due to the impartation, the, the giving, if you will, of this new creation that we are, uh, this regeneration, this, this display of glory is immensely satisfying to us. See, we are in the business, yes, we are sanctified, yes, we are justified, justified never sin, as Dan Winkler always says. We're sanctified, but we, as we're told in the New Testament, are are sanctifying ourselves as he, Jesus, is sanctified. So there's a, there's a process of this. There is an already, but there is also a not yet to the sanctification. Now, all of this has everything to do with preaching, and we're going to hone this in, but, but, but just hold on as we think about this. See, the desires of our heart begin to change as we've been converted to Christ. As this process progresses, you and I are transformed into the image 
of the one that we behold. So this place, this takes place from one level of glory to the next, where the levels of glory refers to the degrees of conformity to Christ. We look more and more like Jesus the more and more we behold him with our true heart's passion. So one of the Spirit's practical or, or principal works is to glorify Christ, John sixteen fourteen. So it should be no surprise then that, that within the Godhead, the Holy Spirit is identified as the primary agent in the sanctification. And we know this because we, we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, uh, the, the undefiled living and abiding word. It's how the Holy Spirit brings us to life. It's how he gives us this new spirit. It's how he, uh, it's, it's how he works in this, um, this creation process. It's the spirit who causes the believer to behold the glory of Christ. So as as you and I delight in the glory that we see in Jesus, the Spirit transforms us into Christ's image. Now, yes, it takes our willful doing, absolutely. But but see, a farmer can go out, and a farmer can take that seed and he can put it into the ground, and he can water it, and he can he can till the ground, he can plant the seed, he can water the seed, he can fertilize the seed, he can make sure that that seed has everything necessary. In order to in order to to be uh, in order to grow in order to be in the best environment to grow, which is what you and I have an obligation to do with our spiritual walk, but that farmer cannot make that seed come to life. That farmer cannot <clears throat> make that seed uh, sprout. He cannot make that happen. So that's something that God does uh, within that seed. Such it is the case. This is something that God does within the seed of the heart of man. That you and I condition, and you and I prep, and you and I till, uh, uproot the the things that would be a spiritual hindrance to the seed. Luke eight eleven, the Word of God. We have an obligation to that, and this is this means of grace. We need to shift the gears. The Spirit is sovereign in this sanctification, not me and not you. When I get to heaven, I can't look to the Lord and say, "Lord, your Spirit had nothing to do with it. I had everything to do with it." So that would be foolishness. Even though that the Spirit is sovereign in this work, he employs various means uh, to, disp- to display this glory of Christ. So believers are, are called upon to make diligent use of this means. And this is the other side of the equation, that the Holy Spirit is the one who is sovereign, and the Holy Spirit is the one who delivers the faith, <clears throat> and the Holy Spirit is the one who uh, actually brings it to life and brings it to fruition, this means of grace. But the other side of the coin is Philippians 2.12, where we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. <clears throat> this this diligence can be likened, um, I, I would say, to actively placing oneself under the fountain of God's sanctifying grace. It, it can be likened to like a farmer, like I said, who who you don't expect the seed to magically grow, but you've got to do your due diligence to prepare the soul. Uh, whatever is necessary to facilitate the growth of that seed in the same way, the believer has no control over the sanctifying effects of the various means of grace. I need the Lord to do this for me. That Colossians 2.12, faith in the operation of God. I don't put any faith in my physical water baptism. That water has done nothing for me. That water is in no way holy. That water is in no way sanctifying. We need to make sure that we understand that. Just because a person goes under the water and comes up the water means nothing if it is apart from faith, if it is a part of the, the working of God. 
when you get to heaven, you're not going to say, Jesus, I need to be here because I've been baptized. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's foolishness. That kind of teaching is what is what stems a, a, a wrongful stigma in the religious world when we say that baptism is essential because all that some of them are hearing is that we're preaching that water water is the way. Water is the way. Water is the way. No. By grace through faith is the way. Now, the way that we come in contact with that faith, that obedient faith, that saving faith, is that agent of water where the Lord says, this is the means by which you'll do this. Uh, this is the means by which you'll take place of my death, burial, and resurrection. It's not the water. It's the working of God. You're not saved in your personal works. I'm not saved in any personal water of mine. I'm saved by faith in the working of God. Are those things essential? Are those things needed? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But I need to take a step back and, and realize that it's not about the water. Get people away from the water and get people around the Lord of the water. That's that's the most important part. So within, within I guess we could say evangelicalism, that would be that would be an an, an equivalent term or, or something that's I guess easily identified. There's there's no list of grace. There's no list of this means of grace. Um but but look at these representatives. I wanna I wanna list seven of them for you. When we talk about these means of grace, when we talk about how and what you and I need to be a part of, the first is meditation. Psalm 1 indicates that those who delightfully meditate on God's Word will like will be like trees planted by the streams of water. In Psalm 1, 2, and 3, <coughs> the second is prayer. Prayer In prayer, the believer communes with the God through with the God of all, through the Son, and by the Spirit, um, worshipfully delighting in Him and conforming their will to His, Ephesians 2.18. The third would be providence, these means of grace. Providence, this is where a believer, you and I, process all of our life through the biblical lens of God's providence. We're believing that even... Even those things which are evil work together for my good and your good, Romans 8, 28, James 1, 2, and 4. So the fourth would be fellowship, where the body comes together and ministers to one another. The body is, is built up, Ephesians 4, 10 through 13. The fifth would be obedience, obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ results in the believer receiving a, a, a full disclosure of him, John 14, 21, a fuller disclosure. Uh, six, we could say, um, baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is, is the initial act of obedience, that step of faith, uh, where this person who believes in Jesus, um, publicly identifies with him, publicly identifies with his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, does this sort of thing where this, this remission of sins takes place. Then the Lord's Supper, it's this, it's this weekly communion with Christ, um, through this spiritual union that exists by his spirit in the church where the corporate body comes together. They remember Christ. They confess sin to one another. Uh, they renew their commitment to one another for holy living. All of these things are, are means of grace. All of these things are means of where God gives you access. Let's talk about the seventh one. The means of grace is the primary means the spirit uses to, to sanctify believers it's, it is the means upon which every other means depends. Okay, <clears throat> how do these, we, we've mentioned six, but the seventh one, I want to talk about the seventh one. 
and this is just a nonchalant list, but the seventh one, the seventh one is the word. Scripture informs meditation. Scripture informs prayer. Scripture in, in, informs the, the biblical response to providence and the biblical fellowship and the obediences is, and, uh, and, and the ordinances, we would say, the things that a person must do. Um, I mean, even furthermore, it, it is in Scripture that the most potent display of the glory of God in the face of Christ is given is through the Word. So the, the, the preaching and, and of the Word of God, of the Scripture of God, it's the primary means the Spirit uses to glorify Christ in the believer. So transforming their their desires, conforming them into His image. This is why Jesus prays in John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's why Peter writes, First Peter two two, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's why the word is central in the exhortation. Second uh, Peter three eighteen grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, the word is preeminent. The word is the preeminent means of grace in the life of the believer. Now, shifted into th- to third, preaching as the means or as the primary means of grace. Though there are many expressions of the ministry of the word, it's I'm I'm persuaded that that preaching is the divinely ordained. Um, instrument that's primary among the works of the Word. In the public preaching of God's Word, a a church receives its most potent display of the glory of Christ. Um, Now, this is not to say that that every congregation's preaching preacher (laughs) is equally gifted, but it is to say that if a person is truly saved, they're they're gifted uh, by God's Spirit through His Word, that they're that they're called to this, they're impaled. The impaled. That's that's truly that's truly how it is. They're 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 convicted to do this. They're properly equipped. They're diligently prepared. Then that ministry carries with immense sanctifying potential. And here's here's the reality: God's word that is preached will go farther than the preacher can preach it. So it will always do much much more than you could ask or think in the preaching. That's I've got up and preached sermons and I thought that was the worst sermon that I've ever delivered. I felt like I was puking all over myself during that sermon and I'd had three people to respond. The word of God doesn't come back void. Just because I drop the ball does not mean that the Lord drops the ball in his preaching <clears throat> and his providence and working repentance in the lives of, of all the all that are there under under the sound of preaching. So under the normal circumstance no ministry of the word is going to receive more time, more effort, and more prayer than a person who's willing to be diligent to that calling uh, of preaching. So no ministry of the word will be as clear, full, deep, precise uh, qualities that are necessary to unleash the sanctifying power of Scripture on the lives of God's people than the preaching of the preacher who's most diligently giving himself to this work. Preachers are, in some ways, um, don't take this haughty, fellas. But it's one of the ways. It's one of the gifts to the local church for the spiritual development. Ephesians four eleven through thirteen. Preachers are given to equip the church, equip the saints for the working of the ministry of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians four twelve. So one of the functions of a preaching uh, minister is to equip those who minister God's word in other capacities. So you're the one who's building up the elders. 
you're the one who's building up the teachers. You're the one who's building up the deacons and the wives of all these folks for there to be spiritual households of God within the household of God. So one of the one of the functions is to do that. All of the means of grace by which God gives the world, all of the means of grace that, that God gives to the church, all of that stems from the word and the preaching of the word. It, it's got to be noted also that the, the corporate gathering is distinct from every other gathering of the church. When the church is gathered corporately, uh, she's uniquely a temple of the Holy Spirit, First uh, Corinthians 3, 16. So it follows that the Spirit ordinarily employs the gathering for potent displays of the glories of Christ through preaching. It's not only the component of the corporate gathering, it's centrally uh, or, or, or it's certainly central to that, to that thought. So this points to preaching as a primary means of grace in the life of the church. It's often said that the public reading of Scripture is the most perfect moment in the corporate gathering. Scripture is inerrant, and the assumption is that when, when it's preached, some degree of error is going to result. No. Um, let, me, let me pull Luther of old. Luther believed there were, there were mere reading of Scripture, that mere reading of Scripture, um, to be less, he said, quote, fruitful and powerful than when it came through um, God's ordered preaching. The Puritans believed this. Uh, they said that they had a profound sense that God had built his church primarily by the instrument of preaching. Of course, Paul, Paul speaks on this, and he exhorts Timothy to the, to the task of, of the public reading of Scripture. But it is the preached word that receives a fourfold charge, Second Timothy 4, 1 and 2. So a strong case can be made that the preaching of God's word in the corporate gathering is, the, is ordinarily the primary means of grace for his people. So I said all that to say this, fellas, don't take lightly what you do. Your preaching is the primary means of grace to everyone that is listening. Number one, to yourself. Number two, to the rest of the fold. Number three, to the, to the person who is not yet of Christ. So maybe you need to preach on preaching. Maybe you need to preach on preaching as the primary means of grace. Whatever it is, take this episode as an encouragement to you. Uh, here we are the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm thankful for you, for everybody who's listening, for everybody who takes anything that is said uh, and takes it and makes it something better for their own personal walk in their lives. That's the beauty of these things. When we come together, we study together, we think about preaching. Those those things, uh, you're, you're able to do far more, far more with this episode than I can. Uh, God's Word can do far more um, than anything that you and I can do. So be, be thankful of that. Be thankful that you are a part of, a part of God's work in sanctifying the believers uh, and that preaching preaching is the primary means of that grace where you're helping them do their physical part but also aligning them alongside the holy spirit uh who they need and on whom they rely whether they know it or not to save them through the preaching of your word so may god bless you in the preaching of the primary means of grace